Lord's been speaking. I'm going to preach to me tonight. I usually do. Uh, and you get to listen in. But this is one I need to hear tonight. And I suspect if I need to hear it tonight, then, um, then you, we all do. In fact, I really was not planning on doing this tonight. And I felt the Lord deal with me about something for me and then to share this with you tonight. So I'm trusting this is going to be something that will minister to you. So uh, put your ears on that you can hear what God's saying to us tonight as we should every time. So let's pray and ask God's help to do this. Father, as we come now to turn to your word, this is a sacred word. This is unlike any other book or any other words that we have. For this is you breathing words to us, life to us. This is God breathed. And Jesus said these words are spirit and they are life. They're alive tonight. And you want to speak to each one of us tonight personally, individually, down in the depths of our hearts. For some of us it may be a word we know we need to hear when we hear it. For others we may not see how we need to hear it, but if we'll hide it in our heart, your spirit will bring it back to us, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, at some point when we need it. But this is a word in due season to be spoken to us tonight. For many of us that have been around for a while, in some ways it's a reminder, but we need to be reminded of these things. And so, Father, as always, we rely upon the precious Holy Spirit who lives in us and is this living word to breathe this word into our hearts and into our understandings that we may leave here tonight with more than just being stirred up. We may leave here tonight with more than just being encouraged, but we may leave here tonight with the key to go forward with the life that you've called us to live until the end, to be faithful to the end. And for that we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 4. Very familiar verses, but we're going to talk about a specific aspect of this. Now the background here is Jesus has been born on this earth. He's lived for 30 years as a good young man, raised in a, in a, in a synagogue, served his father who was a, a carpenter, served him well, uh, filled himself with the Word of God, and then he's now been called to step out into his public ministry. And, uh, and he's gone down out of obedience to the Jordan River, been baptized by John the Baptist. He submitted to the rite of baptism, which was under the old law. And, it, and, 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 and then the Spirit of God, this strange thing, it says he leads him into, led him into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. I thought Jesus teaches us, I've got to be careful, I can get sidetracked here. I thought Jesus teaches us in the, in, the, in the Lord's Prayer that we're to ask the Lord not to lead us into temptation. What's up with this? And yet the Holy Spirit, who is God, the first thing He does is He leads Jesus to be tempted by the devil. Well, I believe what He was doing was God, for the first time in all of existence, God now lived in a physical human body. And the thing about a physical human body is a physical human body is subject to all our five senses. And that is the avenue through which Satan has access to us. So God's now living in a human body with five natural physical senses such as yours. Romans chapter 8 says that he, it was, he came as a man in the likeness of a man. And what does not mean he was not a man, but his flesh was different than yours and mine. Yours and mine has a natural bent to sin. We have to bend it back on a regular basis to keep it from sinning. But he was born with a body 
He was born with a body that did not have that tendency, but it had the capability. And Hebrews 4 tells us he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. If his body couldn't be tempted to sin, it was not a real temptation. So I believe what this was, was this was the Holy Spirit leading him to test out his ability to overcome his flesh and his senses and overcome the devil. And now that having come through that successfully, we go to Luke chapter 4. And Jesus, being filled with the Spirit, returned from the Jordan. We're going to see the temptation, actually. Returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterwards, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, I don't want to get off on this, but that takes nerve to go up to the Son of God and suggest He might not be the Son of God. But if there's anything the devil has, it's nerve. So if you found the devil getting you to question who you are, you're in good company because he tried to get Jesus to question who He is. But we're going to watch how Jesus responded, and it's significant to us. And Jesus, the devil said, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now understand, he's hungry. After 40 days you would be too. And he's being tempted to turn this stone into bread. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Jesus answered him and said, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. The title for tonight's message is not by bread alone. Then the devil taking... We're not going to go on with that. Okay, that goes on to the next temptation. The first thing we're going to see, and again, these notes are posted online, is it's interesting we learn a tremendous amount about how Jesus responded to temptation from the devil. And then look at how we deal with it. This is Jesus, who could call legions of angels down out of heaven. And Jesus handles the temptation by, first of all, He answers it, and He answers it with the Word. So the first thing Jesus said is, it is written. This shows us the place the Scriptures had in Jesus' life. Now, He is the Word of God. He is the Word of God, and yet He reverenced and used the Old Testament Scriptures as His authority for what He did. He was governed by the Word of God even though He was the Word of God. He was limited by what the Word says. The Word of God had a paramount place in His life and in His heart, in His mind, and here we see in His mouth. Now, if the Word of God had that kind of place in His life, what kind of place should it have in our life? Now, bread here refers to this natural world. So he's saying, it's written, man does not live by the things of this natural life alone, as compared to spiritual. He's ref- bread here refers to what we physically need in order to survive. Bread is the food that's necessary to sustain physical life. The, the, the minimal the, the, that they would 
used to say about prisoners uh, of war was that they were put on bread and water because the theory is, I guess, that that's the minimum you need to live on to sustain your body. So the reference here is man does not live by mere bread, which is what's necessary to sustain our physical life. So this refers to the things that are necessary to sustain our physical life. By the way, those are the things we spend most of our time thinking about, most of our time worrying about, most of our time spending our life to make sure we have the basic things of life, and then all the other things of life that we think are necessary that may not be quite as necessary as we think they are. In the Bible, bread often represents our physical life. Now notice another word he says here. Man does not live by bread alone. So the implication is, we do need bread to live. He's not saying man does not live by bread. He's saying man lives by bread, or food, or natural, the natural things of this life, but that's not the only thing man needs to live by. In other words, there are other things that are just as necessary to our survival as physical needs being met. Bread, and water, and shelter, and the very basic things of life we'll talk about in a minute. This is also teaching us that these natural things, these natural resources are just as sacred as the spiritual resources. In our mind, we often have this dichotomy. We think there's the spirit realm and the things of the spirit. So when we're praying, when we're reading our Bible, when we're meditating, when we're doing spiritual things, when we're sitting in church trying to stay awake, then we're being very spiritual. But when we're going to work, when we're showing up on time, when we're doing our job, when we're paying our bills, when we're eating food, those are not very spiritual things. That idea came from the first century philosophers that tried to f- work their way into the church called the Gnostics. And they believed that, 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 that the, because God is so spiritual and so holy, physical things, this natural world, could not come from God because He's so holy. Therefore, they believed that Jesus, as the Son of God, did not actually wear human flesh. It just looked like it. And he did not actually physically touch anything physical because a holy God wouldn't do that. So they actually believed that he never really walked on the earth. He was this millimeter above it. He never really actually touched people. And that is a false image of God. That tells us that God cannot really get involved. But God, this is the genius of the gospel. God became a man a person, not just a man, and walked among us. He understands what it feels like to be us, to be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. God became a man. And so bread alone implies that our food is important to God. God wants us to enjoy our life, wants us to have food. It's when things, when we begin, well, we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. We often separate these true realms, but God does not. Jesus, one of the first things Jesus did when he was raised from the dead and comes among his disciples, what does he do? He has breakfast with them. He's cooking breakfast for them. And he eats with them. I've always been interesting to be sitting there wondering, because they've seen him die. He's raised from the dead, wondering what happens to the food when he swallows it. Well, it didn't fall out. Because this physical, this resurrected body was more real than their body. I don't want to get off on that either. So Jesus speaks here at the end. Keep the context in mind. Jesus is speaking at the end of 40 days without food. 
and down at his feet are all these rocks. Satan is tempting him to take the anointing that he's just received and to use that anointing to meet his physical need. This is very important. To satisfy his physical hunger. This is the same temptation that Satan brought to Eve in the garden. His temptation was to get her to take the provision and the purpose for her life, their life, into their own hands and out of God's hands. He said unto them, he said to them, you know, has God not said, has God, he challenged, has God said you shall not eat of this, this food? Again, it's eating. The devil gets involved with their eating. God told them to eat. God tells us to eat. In fact, he told us to tell them to enjoy it. He wanted them to enjoy just one tree they couldn't eat of. That's a pretty basic, simple diet, isn't it? You can eat anything you want, just not one tree. And so Satan's tempting to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What he's trying to do is to get them, he's selling to them, telling them, God's keeping something from you because he knows if you eat of this tree, you'll be like him. And, and he doesn't want you to be like him, even though God made them in his image. And so he tempted them to take their destiny and their needs into their own hands. And that's what he's tempting Jesus. He has no temptation no new temptations. That's what he's tempting Jesus to do. But Jesus didn't reason with him the way Eve did. Jesus goes back to the Word and says, it is written. So Satan often tempts us at our most vulnerable time, when you're tired, when you're hungry, when you're discouraged, be on guard because you are more vulnerable and he's going to try to find some way to get behind your armor and to tempt you. So Jesus is saying here that there is a greater... He's quoting the word. We'll get into why in a minute. Jesus is saying here that there is a greater need in his life than to satisfy his physical hunger. There is a greater need than satisfying our physical needs. He's recognizing we have physical needs, but there's a greater, more important need that we have to satisfy, a greater, more important hunger to be satisfied that does not come from bread. It comes from something else, which we'll see in just a minute. Jesus is teaching here, or is declaring, that there's a need to rely, only, rely on and obey the Word of God. This is stated by him later on in Matthew 6.33 when he says, Seek ye first. Talking about not worrying about what you're going to eat, not worrying about what you're going to wear, not worrying about the basic needs of life. He says, Don't you understand if you seek first the kingdom of God. Earlier he said, don't you know your father knows what you need before you pray, before you ask? God knows what you need. And he's told us to ask because he wants to give us what we need, but he wants to have us, us to have our priorities right. And so Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 6, if you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all these other things will be added. All your other needs will be taken care of. Satan works so hard to get us to try to hold on to, to manufacture, to preserve, to create, to work for, to satisfy our physical needs in this life. And as a result, we don't put the same effort and importance into the more important needs that we have in our life. And this is what Jesus is speaking back to Satan. Now let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 8, because Jesus said here it is written. So let's go back and look at where it was written. Now Deuteronomy 
is a book of remembrance. It's a, it's a book where, where in which God, through Moses, the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt in, in, in a process of one year. They went to Mount Sinai, they were given the law, and they were brought to the edge of the promised land. And because of things we're going to look at tonight, they were, they, God brought this tried to bring them into the promised land, but they wouldn't go. They were too moved by what their senses told them as opposed to what God told them. And the reason they did that is they failed a test we're going to talk about tonight. So the things we're going to talk about tonight are preparing you for a test that's coming. And we're going to give you the answer sheet tonight. So that when the test comes, you already have the answers. But I've got to give you, you have to practice the answers so that when the test comes because you won't have the answer sheet in your hand. All right. Deuteronomy chapter... So the background here is, is this next... So the first generation came to the edge of the promised land, sent in the twelve spies. They came back. They said, everything God said about this land is true, but there are giants in the land. But we're just like grasshoppers in their sight. But I know God said that He would give us land. I know God said He would overcome the giants, but... Because all they were looking at is themselves. They took their eyes off of God because they didn't practice God's Word. And so they get to this place, they come back and they issue what God says is an evil report. And God says, all right, exactly what you said is going to happen. You said that we're going to die here in the wilderness, so that's what's going to happen. We're going to have to wait another 39 years until this generation that came out of Egypt dies in the wilderness and the next generation that was not raised in Egypt can then go in. So we're now at that point in this history where that first generation has died off. Their children are now at the edge of the promised land and Moses now goes back and tells the story of how they got to this place. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. So he's going to go through the challenges they went through, the things God said to them, and now we're going to come up in in Deuteronomy 8. Every commandment that I command you today you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember the Lord who led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your hearts. He was testing them. We'll talk about that in a minute. Whether you would keep His commandments or not. So He humbled you and allowed you to go to hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God or the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your feet swell these forty years. You shall know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord, the God chastens you. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in His ways and to fear Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land of brooks and of water, of fountains and springs a la- of, that flows out of the valleys and the hill, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. And he goes on to say, you're going to eat bread without any lack and it's just going to... When God's speaking this, they're in a desert. That's all this generation's known. They were raised in a desert. For 40 years, they've walked about in a desert. Hard rocks, hot sun, no water flowing anywhere, no animals other than the owns, their owns that they have. And what he's saying here is that during this 40 years, 
Your feet did not, your, your clothes didn't wear out. Your sandals didn't get old or wear out. Walking for 40 years on hot rocks. Your clothes didn't wear out. In other words, God's saying, I supernaturally provided for you everything that you need. But let's go back to the basic things that they needed, and that's the food. Let's go back and look at uh, uh, verse 3. This is the key verse. So he humbled you. What, so Moses is telling them, what you just went through, this is why you went through it. When they got out in the wilderness and they went about several months out there, they ran out of their food, they ran out of their water, and they ran out of their, their bad lunches, and, and they began to complain. And they say, right away they complained. When, they, when their canteens ran out, they went to Moses and they complained to Moses, you brought us out, we don't want to come, but you made us. You brought us out just to kill us here in the world. They've only been out a short time. They're being tested. They're complaining when things don't go the way they... They're complaining when they can't see how their needs are going to be met. And God told Moses to take a rod. He struck a rock and water came out. God supernaturally provided... By the way, the way they got there, remember? God supernaturally delivered them from Pharaoh's hand with ten dramatic miracles, the last of which was every first male born except the Israelites' first males died in one night. Then they come out to the edge of the Red Sea and they're camped there and Pharaoh changes his heart and mind and 600 of the best chariots in the world come bearing down on them. And they begin to cry out to Moses, they haven't even gotten out yet, did you bring us out here to die? Moses should have figured it out then. Anyway... And so Moses goes to God and says to him, Have you brought us out here to die? They're complaining already. And God says to Moses, Why are you talking? I love this. Why are you, why are you talking to me? He got a little Italian accent. Why are you talking to me about this? I'm like, what do you mean, God? Why am I, I told you to go over the other side. Why are you talking? But there's a river there. Like, God doesn't know that. And so God says, What do you have? God often will work with what it is you have. Then take what you have and do what I said to do. Stretch it out. And as he did, they watched the Red Sea part overnight. Two million people walked across on dry land. And when they got to the other side, these 600 chariots of Pharaoh come barreling down into the bed of the river and they watched in one night Two million of them crossed safely and the entire army of pharaohs swatted up in the river. That's how they got out. And they're not out more than several weeks and they see their canteens run out and they don't think God's going to take care of them. And they begin to complain. Well, they got water now. And now they complain they don't have any food. And so God tells them, here's what I'm going to do. Every morning when you get up, you go out and there will be a dew on the ground and you collect that dew and out of that dew you can knead it and you can bake your bread. And when they went out there the first day, they picked it up and they'd never seen anything like it. So they said, what is this stuff? That's what manna means. Manna means is, what is it? And so... What God commands them to do is every day they're to go out in the morning and they're to collect the dew and knead their bread in the evening, collect the dew and knead their bread. But if they collect more than one day's worth, the second day is going to rot in their teeth. 
It will rot in their teeth. It will rot. That's something else that rots in their teeth. But on the sixth day, they're to go and collect two days' worth. So now the second day's worth won't rot because God said to collect two days' worth. Remember what He says. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. So God's giving words. God's word are, you, I will provide for you. You go collect this this do, you knead it into bread and, and don't take two days worth because it'll rot. You need to trust me. You need to trust my word every day for what's gonna pro- what you need for your basic needs. But on the sixth day, you can collect two days worth because on the seventh day, the Sabbath, you're not allowed to go out and work and collect it. And in that day, it won't rot. Every day, for f- almost 40 years, they had to do this. One point they complained that it was just bread. Free, by the way, it's free. And it's baked in heaven. Well, it's not baked in heaven. It's made in heaven. And they complain. So God says, all right, you want meat? I'll give you meat. They start complaining that they wish they had the leeks and the onions that they had back in Egypt. They forgot about the stripes on their back. They forgot about the quotas for the bricks they had to make. They forgot about being beaten. They forgot about being slaves. They forgot that they couldn't worship their God. They forgot all... See, when you start complaining... When you stop being thankful for what God has given you, then you start complaining. You're on a slippery slope. And then when you start complaining, what happens is you start remembering, your memory starts changing. And your memory of the good old days suddenly is gold gilded. When, when you were going through the good old days, you couldn't wait to get out of them. There's a scripture in Hebrews 11 that warns, he says, because what happens is when you start thinking back too much about how good it used to be, you will be tempted to go back, and they were. one point, they want to murder Moses and go back. So they've gone through almost 40 years of this every day, having to trust God to give them the food they needed simply because God said He would do it. He's providing food and water for them in a desert where there is no food and there is no water, there is no Walmart, there is no stop and shop, there's nowhere else you can get it. The only way you can get it is if God supernaturally provides it. So He humbled you and allowed you to go hungry. That doesn't mean He starved them. That means they couldn't eat what they wanted. And He fed you with manna which you did not know nor your fathers knew. Why? That He may make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Now the word chasten there in here, simply means to, 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 to discipline or to train. 
And he uses the reference in other places as a father chastens his son or disciplines his son. And a father does that to prepare his son for real world out there. So where mama often wants to, to kiss the boo-boo and make them feel better where they are now, father, and this is a, a generalization I realize, father wants to get them ready to deal with the real world. Now, you know, he's fine to make them feel better, but junior's got to grow up. And somewhere, Junior's got to realize life is not sitting in Mama's lap having you sing songs to her to go to bed. You've got to deal with the real issues of life. And it's time you begin to understand some of the hard knocks of life. And deal. So this is what it means by chasing. So God's trying to prepare them for something. And I'm not, we're not going to be able to go in and read it tonight. But he goes on in Deuteronomy 8 and says that God's going to lead them in a land flowing with milk and honey. God's going to lead them in a land where there's going to be water and food in abundance. It's not going to be just manna. It's going to be everything they can dream of and imagine. They're not going to have to work for such things. The land's going to help them and it's going to be a price of great blessing for them. And God goes on to say, I had to train you that all of this came from trusting me so that when you prosper, you wouldn't turn your back on me and say, I made this by my own strength. And boy, we've seen that time and time again where people have grown in their faith and they believed God maybe for a child or they believed God for a job and they've been so grateful to see God provide for them and slowly but surely that child who now has to go to Little League, that job which requires things, gradually you begin to see them stop coming to church, gradually begin to drift away because they did not recognize, they stopped recognizing who was the giver of that gift. Who was the source of that gift? This is why the tithe is so important. It reminds you every payday who your source is. So God's purpose for those 40 years was to train them to trust only in what He said He would do. And here's the key words we're going to talk about tonight and finish up with. The key words is this. So he humbled you, allowed you to go hungry, fed with manna which you did not know, nor your fathers know, that he might make you to know that man shall not live by bread alone. What does that mean to live by something? And these are the words that went off in me. Whatever we live by is whatever we put our trust in for survival. Let's bring it down to the natural. What is it you live by? Not, not enjoy, not, not have pleasure in, not give. What is it you need? What is it you live by? What are the things you live by? Those are the things you cannot live without. Things you may not even think about, such as the next breath of air you breathe. This is the vital things. What do they do when you go into the hospital or you go into to, to do, doctors? They check your vital signs. They want to see whether the really important things are functioning properly. They want to see whether you have a pulse, whether your pulse, so that your heart is breathing, is beating. They want to check, you know, the real basic things like your temperature. They're checking your vital signs. So live by refers to those things that are absolutely critical for you to live, to, for your life. All right? Everybody with me so far? Everybody awake? Everybody awake? Everybody awake? I know it's warm in here. All right. It's a lot warmer where we were headed. This first generation failed to learn this lesson. This is so important to us. This is in here. 
2 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says these stories are in here as examples and warnings to us. This is not just an old Bible story. This is in here to prepare us, and I believe especially for where we are now. So what is it? So this refers to spiritually, what is it we need to live by? Because the Word says here, man does not live by just the breathing, by just the food alone, but there's something else man lives by that man needs that's vital to our life, our spiritual life and our physical life, and it is every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the question is, why can we trust that Word? Why can we trust that Word and to live by that Word? Live by it. See, the problem is most Christians know it that have been around a while. Most Christians read it. Some Christians memorize it. Some Christians meditate on it. Some Christians quote it. But very few of us live by it. Notice the word doesn't say, it is written, man shall enjoy or read every word that's written of the Word of God that's written. Doesn't that say man shall take pleasure in every word of God that's written? It says man shall live by it. And this is the connection that bread refers to. Just as you live by the food that you eat, so we're commanded to live by, live by, survive by, prosper by, Every word, every word, not just my favorite scriptures, every word, every word that proceeds, the Deuteronomy says, from the mouth of God. God speaking words. And those are what we're to live by. Why shouldn't we trust it? Well, first of all, God cannot lie. The Bible says that in several places. But my favorite is Numbers uh, twenty-three, nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie nor the Son of Man that he should repent, change his mind. Has he not said it, and shall he not bring it to pass, bring it about? God's not a man that he should lie. We know people, we don't know whether we can trust someone's word when they tell us something until we have some experience with them. But God's not a man. All the experience you have with people telling you the truth or not telling you the truth, being reliable or unreliable, you can throw it all out the window when it comes to God, because God ain't one of them. God's not a man that he should lie. God cannot lie. If he lies, he stops being God. Every word that proceeds from God's mouth is truth. Truth is what proceeds from God's mouth. That's John 17, 17. So first of all, God cannot lie. The second thing is, God's words are different than our words. When you and I give our word about something, we're predicting or stating our intention. So our daughter's in the process of moving, so I told her, after work, I'll come over and help you. I meant that with the best of intentions, and I was able to come over there. But when I said that, I was giving her my intention, but something could come up and I might not have been able to go. I could have forgotten. Or maybe I just was trying to make her feel better or myself feel better and just telling her something to placate her, which is not what I would do. But, but our words are predicting what we're going to do. They're a statement of our intentions. God's Word 
has within the words themselves the power to create and cause to come about exactly what that word says. Jesus teaches that in Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, because he uses a seed, a physical seed, as an example of God's word. And everything that's necessary to produce that apple tree is in that apple seed. Everything is in there. It just has to be planted and watered and gardened. God's Word contains in itself the power and ability to carry out what it says. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that by the Word of God the worlds were framed. There it is. By faith we understand that the worlds, that talks about the entire universe, were framed by the Word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things that are visible. In other words, it came from God's Word. God said, let there be. He didn't have to scream. He didn't have to shout. He just released the authority of His Word when He said, let there be. And all of the energy that they're trying to grasp and harness in the universe as they see the universe expanding faster and faster and faster and faster and faster, they say goes back to some bang. The bang was God opened His mouth and said, let there be be. And all energy that exists came out of those words, let there be. Why can we live by God's Word alone? Man's life itself, the very life within you, comes from God's Word. Genesis 2, 7, and man, God breathed into man his own breath, and man became a living soul. Jesus said in John 6, 63, My words are spirit and they're life. There's life and power in His words. Let's go to Matthew 14. This story is so powerful. Very famous story. So powerful. I'm sure most of us, we all know it. But I want to, it just says this so clearly. Matthew 14, 25. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. What's happened is he has sent them to the other side of the sea of Lake Galilee and he's going up to pray. In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, not on a boat, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw it, when the disciples saw it, saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it's a ghost. I guess we might think that. Because they're analyzing what this vision could be based on what their minds, the tr- computer of their mind is trying to figure. You don't see things walking on the sea. So it, has to, it can't be a man. It has to be a ghost. Their mind's trying to figure out what this could possibly be. And they're trying to figure it out at night in a storm with fear. Your mind doesn't work too well in those circumstances. And they say, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, Come. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We're talking about what it means to live by His words. Here they are in a storm. 
They're afraid. They see this vision on the walking on the water. The vision identifies himself as Jesus. Peter may have just been testing him out. He said, well, all right, if it's you, bid me to come. And Jesus takes him up on it. And Jesus says, come, one word. Peter has a choice now. He either decides to stay in the safety of the boat because they're in a storm. And they're fishermen. The safest place out on the water in a storm is in the boat, even though it's filling up with water and it's rocking and rolling, pitching and rolling. So Peter decides to obey the word. He decides to literally step out on the word. And his feet go over the side. I've pictured this sometimes. I've acted it out here. What that must have been like going through his mind when he sat on the edge of the boat called the gunnels, I think it is, threw his feet over the side with his sandals on, I guess. And at some point, he's got to get off the safety of this boat and step out onto something. Now, he grew up on the water. He's a fisherman. He's got to make a decision and he steps out And when he steps out, he's walking. The Bible says he walks on the water, but he didn't walk on the water. He walked on the word come. Because you can't walk on water. But you can walk on a word of God. You can't walk on water, but you can walk on anything God says. You can step out on whatever word God has said. Because it's safer out in the storm on God's Word than it is back in the safety of the boat that they've manufactured themselves. Jesus' Word had greater power than the wind and the waves. It had greater power than gravity itself because the Word come held Peter up until Peter stopped looking at the Word and began to look at what his five senses were telling him. His eyes told him it was boisterous and windy. His sense of touch told him that the water was lapping up around his feet and he could feel the wind blowing. And your senses, his senses were talking to him, saying, you can't do this. You can't do this. You're going to drown. You're going to die. Peter has to decide, am I going to pay attention? Am I going to live by the word Jesus spoke? Or am I going to live by what my five senses told me? He got out of the boat on the word, focused on the word. Living, we're talking about what it means to live by every word. Peter's living for these few moments, but, and he's living. Oh, wow. There's life are by a lot, but there's life at God's level. And you cannot live at God's level unless you live it by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Because God's word will take you out of the boat. God's word will take you places that your mind and your senses tell you, you shan't go. You don't have the education. You don't have the background. You don't have the courage. You're too old. You're too young. You're too this. But God has said... And when Peter chose to live by what Jesus said, he lived by it until he got his eyes off of it. And he began to sink and cried out for help. And Jesus came by and rescued him. Let's go on. Verse 30, when 
He saw that the wind was boisterous. That's with his eyes. He became afraid. And beginning to sink, that's an interesting concept. How do you begin to sink? I can take you out on the pond back out here, and we can take you in a little boat, and you step out, and I want to see you begin to sink. That's because his faith didn't just go from faith to unbelief. It got weaker and weaker and weaker as he became afraid, and gradually he stopped trusting in the word come and began to trust in his senses and went down. But notice what happened. He cried out and saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him, which means he got, must have gotten close to Jesus, and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got back in the boat, the wind ceased, and all those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Notice Jesus doesn't take Peter back in the boat. He says, You know, Peter, wow, that was a great effort. You really tried that. The other nine, the other eleven stayed in the boat where it was safe. He doesn't commend Peter. He rebukes him. And I believe it was like this. Peter, you were doing it. You were walking on the Word. You were living by the Word. You were walking on... You were doing something man can't do because you trusted my Word. Why did you doubt? I finally had somebody who would take me at my Word. Why did you doubt? I believe he was frustrated. Interesting side, side note to this. Notice... Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter for trying to believe too much. Religion tells you that's too much to ask for. That's too much to believe for. Who do you think you are? Jesus doesn't rebuke him for trying to believe too much. He rebukes him for not believing more. He doesn't even address the other eleven who stayed in the safety of the boat. Now, just as God, as a father, was trying to train Israel to live by His Word, so He's trying to do that with us as His children. Every challenge of life that you go through, every challenge of life that you go through is an opportunity to either live by your senses and your reason or to live by some word that God has said. Every choice, Every opportunity, you have a choice to go what, what God's Word says or go with your natural understanding. The problem is most of us are so rooted and grounded in natural thinking in our five senses, it never occurs to us there's another way to do it. Until we run out of every other possibility and then we say, oh, I guess I better get my Bible out and find out what God says. And by that time, you're so far down in the water that you're going... Blah, 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 blah. The problem is for most of us that we don't live by God's Word. We read it, we quote it, we memorize it, we put it on a refrigerator, but we don't live by it. Because when you learn to live by it, you find out you can walk on top of the storms of life. You go through them, but they won't touch you. They won't pull you off. They won't destroy you. Paul talks about in, in uh, 2 Corinthians, he says, I'm, I'm go the stuff I've gone through, he says, I'm perplexed, but I'm not in despair. I've been knocked down, but I'm not destroyed. I'm under pressure, but I'm not collapsing. He went through tremendous opposition against him, but it didn't distract him. It didn't stop him. He was successful. And the big proof of it is, he comes to the end of his life with all those challenges, all those storms of life, and he says, it was a triumphant sound from his mouth. I have run my race. I have finished my course. 
Lord. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness and for all those who seek, who are looking for His coming. Paul was successful. He came through everything walking on top of the storms because he learned to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When we learn to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, we're able to overcome every temptation that Satan throws against us. Now, how do we know whether we're living by the word of God? When God's word tells me to do something I don't want to do, all the verses we put in the refrigerator and our Bible and write on, those are the things we want to do. It's like a smorgasbord or a buffet. We go for the things that we want to eat, that we enjoy eating. But it's by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And there's some every words in there I don't like because they don't make me comfortable. There's some words in there that challenge me. Like not just getting along with people, but loving your enemy. Praying for those who despitefully use you. Forgiving people. Holding nothing against someone. Loving your neighbor. God's expanding in my mind what that means from the scriptures. It doesn't just mean loving Christians. They're hard enough. It's loving the other ones out there that, have, that don't like Christ, that don't want Christ, that's reject them and reject you. We're called to love them the same way Christ loved us. We're commanded to do that. So when His Word tells me to do something I don't want to do, what do I do? That's when I find out what place the Word has in my life. Is it a resource that I pull out when I need help? Is it something I do to make me feel good? Or is it, the, is it the constitution that I live by? Is it the authority that I live by? Am I living by it? Or am I just carrying it around? Secondly, when the Word tells me to do something I don't think I can do. The Word tells us 360 sometimes, fear not. I struggle with that one. Fear not. That means if He says fear not, that means it's possible to fear not. And here's the trouble. Because if I say, no, I can't do that, then I will never get to the place where that word works in my life. You follow me? But if I say, yes, the word says to fear not. I may not know how to come to that place. I may be struggling to get to that place. But if God's word says fear not, then it's possible for me to fear not. And if I keep that as my goal, and I keep doing what God's word says, the Spirit of God will engage with that word in me and eventually enable me to walk on top of that storm of fear. But if I look at the word and I just water it down in my mind, and say, well, I know it says that, but... I, I can't ever do that, then I'm not living by the Word. So to forgive somebody who's hurt you, disappointed you, to love somebody who's unlovable, question is, where do you turn in a crisis? What's the first thing you turn to? Is it God's Word coming out of your mouth? Or is it other resources first? Because whatever you turn to in a crisis is what you're living by. Am I more moved by what my senses tell me in a situation or by what God's Word says about that. So what do we do? Well, again, recognize that God is our Father. He loves us. And just as He did with Israel, He's training you. Now, you may not be passing the test yet. You may... See, when I went to law school, the first year of law school was scary because there was only one test and it was the final exam. So you went through nine months of law school on these courses and you didn't know till you got to the end of your one test whether you were doing all right or not. 
So what most teachers do is they give quizzes, they give markers along the way, so you have some idea, I, are you getting this? What are my grade? How, how am I measuring up? So when you come to the end, you don't get this failing mark. It's like, how did that happen? And so every day, you're getting quizzes from God. He may not be sending the challenge, but He's going to use those challenges as an opportunity for you to begin to apply God's Word in your life. Start with the easy things, the little things. And I'll end with this. I'm reminded of the great George Mueller. George Mueller was a, an army, a German army officer, soldier, and uh, got saved. He was a reckless guy. He lived a, 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 a very lascivious life. He was, and, and he got saved. He ends up in England, and he begins to look at the Christians around him and look at God's Word, and he realized most Christians really did not believe God's Word. They didn't believe God would do what He said. So he decided, I'm going to put God to the test. He decided that what he was going to do was he was going to start an orphanage. And he was not going to ever ask anybody for anything. Never solicit a donation, never tell anybody he had a need except take his needs to God. He was going to take God at His word. That God says, if you ask me for anything, I will give it to you, provided you ask in faith. And through all the years of his ministry, he ended up with over 2,000 students at a time. Raised $500 million in our money over the course of his life and never asked a person for a penny. He would have people come to him and say, do you need anything? And he would just smile because he was not going to get a penny from anybody by anything he did except going to God his Father. And God fed those children for all those years. God clothed those children for all those years. And at the end of his life, his testimony was, it's easy for me to believe God. It's as easy for me to believe God for a million dollars now as it was for a dollar when I started. But he started with the dollar. So start where you are. Look at the challenges of your life. Instead of just looking and saying, well, you know, I can go to the doctor, or I can do this, or I can do this, I can do that. Go to God's Word. Find God's promise. Begin to exercise your faith in God's promise. And whether anything works or not, don't worry. God's Word will work if you continue in that Word, because you're overcoming your mind, you're overcoming your habits, you're overcoming your thought processes, and learning to overcome your senses in order to let God's Word... But it will pay off because as you begin to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and it's a lifelong journey, then you will find you will begin to truly live life at God's level. You see, when Peter was on that water, and then Peter began to sink, when Peter was walking on the water, he was not an ordinary man. Because ordinary men can't walk on water. When he began to sink, he became an ordinary man. When you walk on God's Word, when you live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, God's Word lifts you above being an ordinary person and lifts you to be a true child of God with all the ability and capability that God has put in you for what God's called you to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the challenge and the encouragement that you've given to us tonight. Every one of us, Lord, is at some stage of our growth and our faith and our trust in You. And some of us just need to be reminded of these things. Some of us may never heard this before. My prayer, Lord, for all of us, for me especially right now, that in the challenges of life right now, Father, tomorrow when I get up, 
that you will fill me us and fill each of us with the boldness of your spirit to step out on the word that you've given to us. And Father, you will meet us just as Jesus met Peter on that word. You will meet us on that word. And give us the strength to keep our eyes on the word and not on what our senses and what our circumstances tell us. Teach us to speak to the mountain and not let the mountain speak to us. And for that we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Two things before we close. First of all, we never like to close a service without giving you a chance if you've never invited Christ into your life.